Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. This year, we've seen so many authors rewriting myths. We've had Michael Hughes set Homer's Iliad during the Irish Troubles in his book Country, Madeleine Miller took on Circe, and Camilla Shamsi won the Women's Prize for her take on the Antigone myth in Home Fire. This week, we're talking to an author who has built her own. Sarah Perry, who brought us the Essex Serpent, haunting the coasts of East Anglia, has now invented an entirely new myth in Melmoth. And Maria Devana Headley, on the other hand, is going back to Beowulf to bring the beast howling and screaming into the 21st century. I'm here with Claire Armitstead, who interviewed both Maria and Sarah for this episode. So, Claire, I mean, it feels like we've had so many myth rewrites recently. There's books like uh, Com Toy Bean's House of Names, which was a take on Euripides, uh, Michael Hughes, which I mentioned before, Madeleine Miller taking on Circe, uh, Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls, Stephen Fry and Neil Gaiman also doing their own takes on Greek and Norse mythology. Why is this? Why are we having so many? Well, there are lots of theories about this. My own theory is that they tell huge, great stories and they're also shared stories. And we're going through a huge, great period of historical turmoil when everything is up for grabs, really, that cultures are changing, the technology with which we tell stories is changing. And I think that sometimes storytellers reach back to something, something that's very firm and large and capable of summing up these swirling, shifting quicksands on which we find ourselves at the moment. Is it sort of a source of stability then to to be able to say, well, this was a story that was told 2,000 years ago and we can still retell it and it still applies to us. I think so. And, but also they're very big stories. You know, you, all, all these stories, you, you go back to Greek myth or Oedipus in the case of Daisy Johnson or indeed Beowulf. And you're, these are massive stories. They're stories of life and death and huge, great forces of fate bearing down on the individual and putting in play uh, individual stories of, of tragedy and the ability to conjure with these and therefore you're automatically creating a palette which is recognizable I mean it's it's so funny though to think of books that are so often tragedy these these myths are often really quite dark quite violent to think that they might reassure someone in some way to understand that this this is a tale that's sort of as old as time and uh, could be retold and reapplied to their lives but also to the lives of people thousands of years before. I mean, the case of Sarah Perry, which is a really frightening book. Does this still apply? Is it still something that would reassure a oh, reader? Oh, I, I, I think that horror, one of the purposes of horror is to reassure. <laughs> it shows us the absolute worst that can happen and it rids us of our own violent feelings. I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the purpose of tragedy. Mm. Um, and I think that that's part of the purpose of supernatural stories is to bring us face to face with our own superstitions. And, and that's what Sarah Perry does. She actually hasn't totally invented this character of Melmoth because Melmoth appeared in an 1820 Gothic novel originally. Um, but she's, Melmoth the Wanderer. Melmoth the Wanderer, yeah. But she's absolutely fleshed her out. And she has a moment when, when she says, what do you do to bring to life a myth that doesn't exist? Mm. And 
in saying that, what she's partly recognising is the importance of myths, the importance of something to give a shape and a form to our fears. I mean, and so many of these books that have come out this year have been inspired by Greek mythology in particular. And the role of women in Greek mythology is, is so interesting because often Greek society was extremely patriarchal. So often female characters were sort of these cunning, malicious figures who were often the source of downfall for men. Both of these books have women very prominently in them. Can you talk about that a little bit and and how it's been turned on its head? Well, it's not a coincidence that five of the writers we're mentioning on this podcast are women. Mm. And you think, well, it's the wonderful thing about these old myths is that there's sort of a blank canvas for women to reinvent them as they want to because you're absolutely right they mostly are in a sort of heroic male mode and what Maria has done in The Mere Wife very cleverly is she's picked out the mother of Grendel it's not Grendel himself who is the monster in Beowulf but the mother who in the original only gets a very small mention although she's the sort of looming presence over it and said what would Grendel's mother be like now and, and what she would be like now is she's an outcast and because she's been made an outcast what what can she do but protect her young, who is also an outcast? And all the ferocity is centred around this little monster who, to her, is just a child. And I just think, well, it's such a very, very powerful. And, and also in our, you know, in this era, our, our sort of Me Too era, when we're, we're reassessing the role of women and also the, the whole role of what it means to be public, what it means to be heroic. We're reassessing from a more female perspective these myths are just waiting to be grabbed and picked up by the scruff of the neck and carried around like a little monster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so much for reinventing existing myths. What about making one so convincing that it blurs the line between fact and fiction? Sarah Perry has succeeded so well in imagining her new myth about a woman called Melmoth who met and denied Christ and lived eternally regretful that one American national newspaper was completely taken in and repeated it as fact. When she came in to talk with Claire, Perry began in time-honoured tradition at the very beginning. Look, it is winter in Prague. Night is rising in the mother of cities and over her thousand spires. Look down at the darkness around your feet in all the lanes and alleys as if it were a soft black dust swept there by a broom. Look at the stone apostles on the old Charles Bridge and all the blue-eyed jackdaws on the shoulders of St John of Nepomuk. Look, she is coming over the bridge, head bent down to the whitening cobblestones. Helen Franklin, 42, neither short nor tall, her hair neither dark nor fair. On her feet, boots which serve from November to March and her mother's steel watch on her wrist. A table salt glitter of hard snow falling on her sleeve, her shoulder, her neat coat belted, as colourless as she is, nine years worn. Across her breast, a narrow satchel strap. In the satchel, her afternoon's work, instructions for the operation of a washing machine translated from German into English, and a green, uneaten apple. What might commend so drab a creature to your sight when overhead the low clouds split and the upturned bowl of a silver moon pours milk out on the river? Nothing at all. Nothing that is. But this, these hours, these long minutes of this short day, must be the last when she knows nothing of Melmoth, when thunder is just thunder and a shadow only darkness on the wall. If you could tell her now, step forward, take her wrist and whisper 
Perhaps she'd pause, turn pale and in confusion fix her eyes on yours. Perhaps look at the lamp-lit castle high above the Voltava and down at white swans sleeping on the riverbank, then turn on her half-inch heel and beat back through the coming crowd. But, oh, it's no use. She'd only smile, impassive, half amused, this is her way, shake you off and go on walking home. So, Sarah, lots to talk about from that. (laughs) First of all, this mysterious Melmoth. What is she? Who is she? She is a woman who was one of the company of women that saw the risen Christ in the New Testament and later denied that she'd seen anything. And because of her denial, she has been cursed to wander the earth until Christ returns, witnessing humanity at its worst. And because of this, she's desperately lonely and she visits people who are undergoing terrible guilt about things that they've seen or things that they've done. And she says to them, look what you did. Look what you've done. If anyone knew what I knew, nobody would want you, but I want you. And then she says, take my hand. I've been so lonely. So that's the legend of Melmoth. Which you've invented. I have, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really interested that you should have taken it back to a sort of foundational Bible story. Yeah. Um, So there's two reasons for this. One of them is that Charles Robert Maturin, who wrote Melmoth the Wanderer, which is the book that this is an homage to. Which was an 1820 Gothic novel. Yeah. And in it, there's a character called Melmoth who's entered into effectively a Faustian pact to get another 150 years on earth and that's sort of based on the legend of the wandering Jew which is a very ancient basically anti-semitic legend that had a lot of currency in eastern Europe and I thought it would be fun because I enjoy trickery and I enjoy manuscripts and I enjoy playing around with these things to invent an institutionary legend that predated Maturin and predated the legend of the wandering Jew and was female so the book proposes that this is the real legend and that Maturin sort of saw Melmoth or heard about my Melmoth and that's why he wrote Melmoth the wanderer and the real fun thing for me is how much people have been taken in so one of the american national newspapers um said you know this is sarah perry's take on the legend of melmoth the witness one of the women who denied christ which has really entertained me but you although you're sort of playing that particular trick actually what you do is you follow the recipe if you like of maturin so i.e you use source there are lots of sort of um written records so so it's a cache of documents that's right it's based on and because the thing that i wanted to do most of all with this was was have enormous fun with the gothic form and it's kind of a risky thing to do because the gothic in its its silliness has always sat slightly outside kind of accepted norms of what's good taste you know, good sensible literary fiction. And uh, the Gothic has always played around with documentation with the idea that this is, no, this actually happened. So, you know, Jonathan Harker being a solicitor and writing letters back about his worst ever client. And Dracula. <laughs> and Dracula, yeah. So Maturin does it to a huge extent where there's tales embedded within manuscripts which are embedded in letters, which are handed to somebody in a diary, which are found by somebody else in a shipwreck. It's like a matryoshka doll and I couldn't do it as complexly as he did, but I wanted to pay tribute to that. And these documents hugely varied. So they go back to the 17th century and they spread across Europe, but they also go into Armenia and the Philippines. Yes. So let's just deal with the history (laughs) first. So we're taking our our, our Russian dollar apart bit by bit. So let's deal with the history. Why did you pick that particular moment of history to go back to? 
When I conceived the idea of Melmoth, it was sort of... So it had been running around in my head for a long time, ever since I first read Melmoth the Wanderer when I was about 30, I guess. And I thought, you know, it'd be fun to do something with this. And then I really got my teeth into the idea around about the time of the publication of The Essex Serpent. And I remember the launch party for The Essex Serpent being the day after the massacre in the Orlando nightclub. And around about that time, people were fleeing Assad in Syria and, you know, children were drowning on Mediterranean beaches. ISIS were beheading people on Twitter. And I wanted to give up. I genuinely almost gave up writing. I'd had a place at law school three or four years ago and I thought, well, I can do something more useful with my life than write fiction. It felt like fiddling while Rome burned. And then I thought, if I can make my Melmoth a witness to atrocity, to real historical atrocity, and in doing so force the reader to question our own role in witnessing what's happening now, then my book or you know, my work could have some kind of moral purpose. So as soon as I conceived of my Melmoth being a witness, I thought, right, she needs to see what other people don't see or what they deny. So the Armenian genocide is not accepted officially as a genocide. And I also deal with the treatment of the German-speaking Czechs at the end of the Second World War, which nobody wants to hear about. Nobody wants to hear about Germans being put in concentration camps because it messes with our idea of villainy and, and so on. And then uh, there's a narrative in Manila because the stories of voiceless women in the developing world who have suffered domestic violence are again not heard. So all of the stories in the manuscript are chosen as being unheard stories. So these all impact on this character who you introduced in that section, 42-year-old non-entity. Hey, what sort of a character is that (laughs) (laughs) to hold a story, a gothic novel? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So there were two things at play here. One of them was just a determination that I wasn't going to write another very charismatic female lead who was, you know, strutting about, chafing against gender norms and, and being very compelling and attractive. I wanted to do something different. But also, really importantly... Boring people are often concealing, boring people, doing huge air quotes, are concealing vast lives that are often not seen because we think that people who commit great acts of transgression are concealing vast kind of reserves of desire will somehow look compelling and interesting. But actually, so much is going on in the lives of small, inconsequential, drab people. So talking about that, that's a sort of motif that reappears. So, for example, the person who is implicated in the Armenian massacre was a clerk who was just a a bureaucrat. Yeah, absolutely. And this was really important to me. I, I was very affected by a lecture I heard at the Medicine Unboxed Festival last year, which was a lecture on German doctors in the Second World War. And rates of Nazi party membership were higher in the medical profession than elsewhere. And the people who made the decisions about who would work and who would die on entry into the death camps were all doctors. And I suddenly thought these men were not born with hooves and horns. They weren't born wicked. They were born perfectly ordinary people to middle class families who presumably went to medical school looking to set bones and sort out people with tumours. And then they ended up cogs in this vast machine of destruction. So... You give people a get-out-of-jail-free card if you paint monsters as monstrous, because very often they look just like us, and could be us, actually. Why have you chosen Czechoslovakia for the setting, Prague for the setting? 
There were a number of reasons. One of them was because I knew that, left to my own devices, I would just write another book set in East Anglia. It does appear. It must be said <laughs> East Anglia is there in the background. I can never quite <laughs> escape it. Um, and I'm constantly trying to drive myself forward. And because I write very responsive in a fashion that is very responsive to the the world around the characters I wanted to see what would happen if I put a foreigner in a foreign land a a stranger in a strange land how would they react to the environment around them when it's not in their bones in the way that for example uh, the setting in my first two books are and I started to look to Eastern Europe because I was thinking about the impact of the Second World War and also thinking about um, different kinds of Gothic architecture and then the opportunity came up to be the writer, the UNESCO City of Literature writer in residence in Prague. And I thought, aha, <laughs> the Czech Republic, that'll do it. <laughs> um, so I lived there for two months and just walked around in the snow in my long coat, staring at jackdaws and thinking about Melmoth. And didn't actually do any writing, but thought, sat in the library a lot at desk 209. <laughs> and that's where I found her and found my characters. For much of the novel, I I was thinking, what is this really about? And I thought it's about the conscience of Europe in Mm. the 20th century. Well, it's obviously not in either just in the 20th century because it goes back to the 17th century and it or is it just in Europe? But in a way, that is the collecting point, isn't it? And how much is it a story that is resonating with the whole idea of Brexit and Europe being torn apart? And I mean, I hope very directly and and I remember writing one scene which is a scene in an airport where someone is being deported and this person is not being deported by the police they're being deported by a private security firm and that's actually from an article I read in the Guardian all I did was change the gender and the and the nation that the person was going back to and I remember writing that scene and thinking oh man this is really on the nose you prig (laughs) you know who do you think you are trying to um you know jostle the conscience of your readers let them get on with being entertained but I really felt I had to do it because if all things tend toward entropy we seem to be doing it at a remarkable rate at the moment and I do think that fiction has a part to play in holding up a mirror sometimes very uncomfortably which I think I gather from readers this book has done so that when we look back at what happened in the Armenian genocide paperwork just paperwork signed by civil servants leading to tragedy that's what happened in America with those children being taken away from from immigrant parents it doesn't stop you've just come back from America from, yes. from introducing it there yeah how, how did it go down there really really well in fact I would say better than here it was really interesting the critical response was incredibly enthusiastic and partly I think because the religious tenor of the book which does deal with the concept of sin I mean I'm a very post-religious very radical let's just put this on the table you grew up in a fairly fundamentalist christian background totally fundamentalist christian background and what that's done to me is even though now i don't regularly worship anywhere um and i call myself post-religious which is very different from post-faith it is embedded in me like brighton through a stick of rock to think about good and evil and sin and conscience and redemption and all of this stuff and that language is in the book and i i have a feeling that that is more common currency among kind of intellectual and critical readers in America than it is here, where there's still a certain squeamishness, for example, about using the word sin or or any of that stuff. And I had a great afternoon where a journalist from the New York, New York magazine just wanted to walk around some graveyards and churches with me, which, of course, I was never going to say no to. And she asked me about the Me Too movement, and she felt that the book had a lot to say 
about a woman silenced by her own fear of what men would say. So you mean Helen's? No, no, the the Melmoth. You know, because ultimately Melmoth denied Christ, denied having seen him because the women weren't believed anyway. What was the point? And then she got punished for it. And then she has to spend 2,000 years watching all of these awful things happen and not not really being able to intervene. So there was something kind of very, there was like a feminist urge behind creating her. And so this journalist was saying, what would Mel Moss do now? You know, what would she do now to Harvey Weinstein and Brett Kavanagh? And I said, you know, watch. I should have taken you to St Pancras graveyard to do this interview, <laughs> just around the corner. Good, we could have yeah. gone and consorted with the Shelleys. Yeah, it's the day for it, isn't it? Yeah. The language of the book, what's interesting about this compared with the Essex Serpent is the Essex Serpent is sort of uses period setting to create an idea of being in that period. Yeah. What you use, how you use the language in this is make is postmodern, really, isn't yes. it? And as you, we could see from that excerpt, it's very, very formal, but it is sort of distancing. Yes. So I'm really excited by play and by formal play in fiction and by all of the devices and forms that are available to us. And I I choose them very consciously. So when I wrote The Essex Serpent, the task for me was to make a historical period seem fresh. And I did that in all sorts of ways. But one of the ways I did it was by making sure that people said mum instead of mama and people rode bikes instead of bicycles, just tiny little ways of, of making it seem immediate. What I wanted to do with Melmoth was to make the present seem strained and sort of odd and distant. And so I had to do the exact reverse, which was to write about contemporary Prague in a voice that is somehow otherworldly and off kilter and unsettling. I was just trying to find, I was trying to think of a particular phrase, the way you describe Helen. It's sort of as if she's walked the wrong way through a telescope. Oh. And, and it's, you keep having to remind yourself that this is actually 2017, yes, this yeah, setting, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yes. And that's part of the gothic. It's, it's, it's how to force the reader into a feeling of the uncanny, which is such a big part of the gothic. The best example of the uncanny in contemporary fiction, I think, is the opening of Beyond Black, where Hilary Mantel, May She Live Forever, says... Tea time in Enfield, night falling on Potter's Bar. And it's incredible because there's then this description of a journey around the North Circular, I think. And and it's totally heimlich. It's totally of home. You know, we recognise Enfield and Potter's Bar, but it's wrong. It, it's, it's couched in a way that is slightly strange and distancing. And it's fantastic because it's totally familiar to anyone who's wearily driven on a wet Friday afternoon on those dreary roads, but also very deeply gothic um so it's a way of never allowing people to be comfortable i think it's 2018 it's prague she's got a mobile phone so why do i feel weird and that the gothic is this place where things are very seductive and very beautiful but also very strange and repulsive and i write to affect people as much as i can and that's a really good way of affecting them where they, they don't quite know how they feel mm, I always think of it as your feet are about six inches off the floor you yes know, that thing about you see somebody walking across the room but their feet are not yes. on the floor and that's the feeling that your fiction gives oh, good me. I'm so pleased and I, I remember writing conceiving of Melmoth and beginning it and saying I really really wanted to upset and distress people more than I had done before and I have and feel bad about it so I've had readers had to keep it in the freezer overnight. Oh, uh, People having to take it off their nightstand because they can't sleep with it in the room next to them. Quite a few of my friends can't read it. 
they got halfway through and I've had formal text messages saying, I'm so sorry, love you, support you and everything you do. I'm not reading that book. So, and people saying, someone tweeted me and said, I didn't think I was that affected by it and forgot about it. And then two days later, nearly crashed the car because I thought I saw Melmoth in Sainsbury's car park. That was Sarah Perry speaking with Claire Armitstead. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It takes a certain amount of chutzpah to rewrite one of the oldest stories of all time, and chutzpah is something that Maria Devana Headley is not short on. She is the woman behind the book The Year of Yes, in which she went out with anyone in New York who asked her to. She's also a young adult fiction writer of books like the fantasy epic Magonia, and is a friend and collaborator of Neil Gaiman. She gathered Claire around the metaphorical campfire to tell us her story, beginning with a reading from The Mirwife, her modern imagining of Beowulf. Listen, my son says. Someone's singing. Gren's been playing with the skin of a red squirrel, some pebbles and a tin can, digging a hole in the ground and burying his rattling rag doll. What's that voice, he says again. It's not a voice, it's a piano. The player below us continues the alphabet, the scales rising, jarring, false notes. They sound like things I'll never be able to get for Gren. Listen, he whispers, his hands spread to catch the noise like it's something he can keep and eat, like it's a bird or a frog, like a song can feed him. This is how the war begins, a piano lesson echoing up the mountain. This is how I start to lose him. Only one other person has ever seen my son. You figure out what you can do for love, and the answer, it turns out, is anything. You can hide for love. You can stay hidden. Cash register, army surplus, my son wrapped up in my coat. He was just a baby then. I thought I might be up here on this mountain for no reason. Maybe everything I thought was wrong in the world wasn't wrong at all. Maybe he'd be safe here. 
Maybe I was just every mother ever, panicked, looking at her child and seeing all the ways he might get hurt. He was mine, and I wanted someone to tell me my son was beautiful, to tell me he'd grow into a man. I didn't want to be alone forever with no one to help me and no one but me to help him. Oh, you've got a little one, the woman at the checkout said and pulled the blanket away from his face. She looked at me and I looked back at her and neither of us said anything, but all the worst things blasted into my head. The look on her face was a look I'd seen in the war. Soldiers bending to admire babies, knowing that in a week, a day, an hour, those babies might be dead. I saw bombs falling and obliterating my son, and I saw guns aimed at him. I saw his body categorized as an enemy body, and I couldn't breathe. I wrapped him up again. I held him tighter. I went up the mountain, trying to seem like I wasn't running, doubling back, hiding my tracks. She was the last person I spoke to. That was six years ago. I hope she's forgotten everything about it. There's nothing wrong with him. He's perfect. His eyes are gold. He's all bones and angles. He has long lashes like black feathers. He's almost as tall as I am, and he's only seven. To me, he looks like my son. To everyone else, I don't know. A wonder, a danger, a boy, a boy with brown skin. Any of these things will make him a target. I know the world. I've been in it. Mama? Gren, I say, all is well and will be well. I simplified the line and made it a lullaby. He says the next line back to me reluctantly. He's distracted by the piano. And the squirrels will be fed and the trees will grow taller. The snows will come and pile up, but will be warm, I say the next line, and Gren says the next. Like the animals, he says, all in their dens. This mountain used to be a place where predators could survive, but the last mountain lion I saw out here was spread across the asphalt one morning, belly vibrating with flies. We're not predators. Like the fish sleeping beneath the frozen water. Like the children, safe in their beds, he says. And this isn't a line I taught him. This is something he's made for himself. Has he been watching the people down the mountain, thinking about what he doesn't have? I put it aside. He's still little. He doesn't know how to lie to me yet. I haven't always been here, but it's all Gren knows. I can't panic. I can't think things could be as bad as the rabbit part of my heart suddenly insists they're about to be. We don't need to listen to the people down there, I tell my son. They have their place, and we have ours. Listen, though. Listen, my son insists. There's a little whine in his breath, the air catching itself in his vocal cords and singing through them. I worry about asthma. I worry about everything. Everything in me says get away from here, but I know what I am. I'm a stack of broken dishes in the shape of a woman, and this is a flight response. So it's very interesting re-encountering that passage, having now read it, and I realise how much is in it. For example, the piano. What he is hearing is a little boy down on a housing estate at the bottom of the hill playing the piano, mm -hmm. and this is a, the relationship between people who live on the hill and the people who live on a housing estate. It's a sort of mashup between Richard Yates' Revolutionary Road and Beowulf, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. That was the that was the intention to write a novel about a gated estate, a suburban gated estate, sort of upper class people surrounding the wildness of what in Beowulf is Grendel's mother's mirror. But the um, estate is called Herod Hall. Yes. Now, people who know Beowulf will know that Harriet was the Mead Hall in that very old poem. What is your interest in Beowulf? How did you come across it? 
I have trouble remembering how I first encountered Beowulf. In the States, it's taught in school. It's part of the curriculum. And I know that I encountered Grendel's mother when I was really little in a picture book. There was this picture of this amazing-looking woman with a sword. She was strangely naked, and she was coming out of a, a swamp. And I thought well, who is that? Who has that, that sword? And so the rest of she was orphaned from the rest of the Beowulf context. Beowulf, she doesn't actually have a very big role, does she? Well, she has a bigger role than one might think. She's the central, quote, monster, although she's not a, really a monster, that Beowulf fights. But her, she doesn't get any lines. She doesn't get to say anything. And she's just called Grendel's mother. She doesn't even have a name. On the contrary, your Dana has lots and lots of lines. She's she's one of, there are two voices. One voice belongs to down the hill and one voice belongs to up the hill, if we put it like that. But Dana is the voice of up the hill, really. Yeah, she, she gets to narrate large quantities of the book and the section we just heard was her. But there's also the, the wife of the sort of heir to the hall down below, who also is one of the narrators. And then there's a natural world point of view. The mountain actually talks in this book a little bit to us, not to anyone else, but to us. And there's the chorus of women, the chorus of mothers-in-law. Yes, exactly. There's the chorus of, of suburban matriarchs who are sort of running everything behind the scenes. They're the soldiers of suburbia. One of the things that really struck me was how packed with bon mots it is. For example, <laughs> on the piano, I wrote, I wrote them down in my book and I suddenly found my notebook was getting fuller and fuller and fuller. In that, in the, the very first encounter over the piano, and you, you say the piano is, an, or Willa says, the piano is an act of savage warfare disguised as culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just thought, oh, yeah, I really like that. You mm-hmm. know, it's got ivory and ebony. It's got dead trees and dead animals. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like a trophy. It's an interesting trophy piece. And the idea that, at least in America, I don't know if this is true here, but the idea of having a piano was always it was a class signifier this having a piano in the house and it meant that you that you had some some privilege and some status and could could even say I have a piano but it was it's sort of like you have an elephant and some other some other bits of the natural world as well in your house the setting is although you don't specify the period what it evokes is the early 1960s late 1950s it's a, it's a nebulous period because it's a mythic, the text has a kind of mythic fable quality. And I did that on purpose. I wanted to make it less grounded in a very specific place and more grounded in the history of how humans have dealt with each other because that's what the original is. I think the nature of the suburban community is very 1950s, but we also have the sense that Dana has been, she's a female soldier, so she's been in, the, in a recent war in the Iraq-Afghanistan conflict. So I, it is a mashup. I, I wanted it to talk about the ways that in America we, we retain our identity as sort of 1950s winners of the world, like post the good war, post this idea that we're heroes of the world. I wanted to talk about how we came to that conclusion that we're all heroes without doing anything heroic. And the nuclear family is still at the heart of it mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm. which is, you know, just think that that's quite an interesting position to take at this moment in history. Mm-hmm. The nuclear family also then shifting because Dana and her son Grendel are by themselves. There's no father for Grendel, and that's from the original. And then in the in the hall, we have definitely a nuclear family of Willa and her son, her son Dylan, who is the boy who's playing the piano in that section, and her husband Roger, who's uh, king Roger and queen. by name, Roger by nature. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's um, he's. He's a kind of good old boy of, of, the, of the community, and he's sort of the king and she's the queen, and they have a son who's a prince. Now, what is very up to the minute about it, to me, is this sense of it is our wild nature that lives up on the hillside. And I seem to have 
been coming across loads and loads of books that are doing this at the moment that are saying actually we have our civilized worlds down at the bottom of the hill if you like but there is the other us the other us is this id in a way mm-hmm. which and i was wondering the extent to which that was in your mind it's you know actually dana is a human being but she's a, a human being who has suffered the worst that humanity can give to her. Therefore, she has been outlawed and she has become a wild thing. Mm-hmm. So she represents the, in a way, the id of this sort of nice domestic life that we see downstairs. Mm-hmm. I was interested in doing mirrored sides for, for all of all of this world because we have we have Grendel and Dylan who are also two sides of Actually, I'm sorry, not Grendel. In my book, he's called Gren. Gren. So it's Grendel if you put the two boys mm. together, these two boys who find each other and become friends, but they're from opposite sides of of the world. Like one is from civilization and the other one grew up in a cave. And I think I've been very interested. I myself grew up in Idaho, which is a, a pretty wild place. It's forests, and I grew up in the high desert, not in a forest, but part of my childhood was spent in a log cabin in the woods earlier in my childhood. The notion of living off the land is not foreign to me. I came from people who did that. So I have always been interested in the way that we all interact with each other and attempt to interact with each other in border zones, in places where the wild and the civilized intersect with each other. So that's what I was putting. I put characters on either side of that divide and then had them press their faces against the glass and and look at each other. And that happens throughout the book. Mm. And what they, the only thing that people down at the bottom of the hill can understand is a bear. But it's not a bear that is the threat to them. Mm-hmm. And, but there is, of course, there are bears in the hills as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So now the person, the character we haven't talked about is your Beowulf. Yes. Your Beowulf, who's called Benwulf. Yes. <laughs> and he is a suburban police officer. He's, he, this book, I started writing this book in 2015, and I'd been thinking about it for a long time, but I, I began to think very intensely about the way that police officers interact with, particularly with young men of color in America. And by interact, I mean brutal interactions, murders. And several young men had died, and we had a lot of video of those exchanges and of these horrible things happening, and then the police officers getting no punishment for, for their crimes. And so I was interested in creating a Beowulf character who, as in the original poem, feels that he is a hero, feels that he is definitely on the right side of justice. And then, as also is true in the poem, he kills a woman and a child. So this is something that is a complicated element of the poem and something that I have, I think is one of the really interesting things about the poem, that this man continues to feel that he's a hero even as he does things that are not conventionally heroic. And I think that the police dynamic in America is very much that, this idea that you're a keeper of justice and keeper of the peace when, in fact, very frequently you're doing the opposite thing. You're actually creating monsters out of people who aren't monsters. You are you are attacking children and calling them grown men. I'm interested that you, you've you sort of told us the plot. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a problem with that. You don't feel that, <laughs> Spoilers. that you, you don't feel that you're spoiling your own novel. I, I You know, I don't. This is um, because it's an adaptation of Beowulf and the plot is fairly close to Beowulf. Much of what happens in Beowulf also happens in this book. So if you've ever encountered Beowulf, I always say, just read the Wikipedia plot summary of Beowulf and you'll have it. This book will be more fun to read. But you can also read it without knowing anything about Beowulf. So I don't feel like it's the spoilers, really. I feel like sometimes I wrote this book in in a way to follow in line with the oral tradition of storytelling like that. This is a book that was really meant to be read aloud. And 
in those ballads and those stories, those things would you would know the story already. It wasn't a surprise what the monster is coming wasn't it wasn't a surprise that the monster was coming. And in fact, in the text of Beowulf, it's consistently repeated the monster is about to come. So as an audience sitting around the fire or sitting in the mead hall, you know the monster's about to come and you're you're waiting. So I think it's really about this, this kind of storytelling with a, with a more fable quality is about you kind of know what's going to happen, but it's how we get there that's that's why we're reading and and the way that the way that we get inside characters we've not gotten inside before and that's that's why I wrote it like this and that's also why spoilers I'm like it's just plot the plot isn't the most interesting thing the yeah. thing that's interesting hopefully is the multiple POVs in this book and the way this, the ways that we hear from characters we haven't heard from before. That's so interesting because in a way it is very plot driven. I mean, a lot of stuff happens mm-hmm. and things, I mean, it's plot in the sort of pure sense of plot in one thing happens, therefore another thing happens. Yes. It's not just things yes. <laughs> happening. And yet the plot isn't actually the, at the heart of it. At the heart of it is the relationship. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it's as much poetry as it is plot and, and it's a very, it is very plotty. It's a, I wrote it, I attempted to write it in a sort of thrillery so that it would be a page turner so that you would want to keep reading to know and you and even if you know Beowulf you're thinking oh no this I know what happens in Beowulf I hope this isn't what's going to happen in this book and as the person writing it I felt that way too I thought oh no this is a story in which Beowulf kills three people and if I'm adapting Beowulf there needs to be those interactions need to happen and they happen very differently in the book. But I wanted I wanted us to care about the characters and invest in them enough that we were still turning the pages, even as we had a dread that something terrible was going mm, to happen. There is that sort of dread. And I, I remember from reading Beowulf for years and years and years ago, feeling that sort of dread. You mm-hmm. could understand how, mm-hmm. how that was what the poet who wrote it was, was invoking. Now, this is very, it's a grown-up book. You're known for YA that's how you've come up. Do you, do you make that distinction or do well, you not accept that? I, I, I really, I feel like I write all kinds of things. So I do write young adult novels and they're different from this. They have, um, both of the young adult novels I've written have, have a 16 year old, they're Magonia, they're called Magonia and Airy. They're a sequence and they have a 16 year old protagonist who's a girl who came from the Sky Kingdom and didn't know it. She's on earth and problems ensue. But really... Those books are, I'm the same writer the whole time. So lots of adults read my young adult. And I think actually lots of teenagers are going to read Mirwife. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I, as far as distinctions, I think that my writing is kind of everything is for everyone. I was, as a young reader, I was always in the adult shelves and sort of climbing them because I couldn't get to the top fast enough. I wanted to read everything. And I know a lot of young readers who are like that. And I know also that I didn't understand lots of what was in the the books that I was reading, but I got a sense of the world. I started to build a world inside my head based on reading things that were too old for me, that were not on shelves I was supposed to be climbing. But they were stories about the history of the world. And it's, it's all added up to someone who aggressively wants to write for, for as many kinds of people as I can write for, because I want to have readers who have that experience, who are potentially startled by information they didn't know that they find in one of my books. You're also an anthologist and a memoirist. Yes. The year, the year of yes. Yes. Now, that was a project and a half. It was. <laughs> it was. That was my first book. It was a memoir about a year that I went out with everyone who asked me out on a date in New York City. That was a really different book. It was really comedic. It is. I guess it exists still. It does exist. It's a comedic book about me doing a project for a year and seeing if I could find love. And yeah, that was probably the last time I really did book tour in the UK. That's exactly what I was touring with. So it's been a while. And interesting to be on 
hopefully not on both sides of a career. This is certainly not going to be my last book right now, The Mere Wife, but it's fun to have been all around the spectrum of comedy and nonfiction, and I, I hope to continue doing that. There's a new translation of Beowulf coming out next year that I'm doing, so that's yet another thing. I don't know. It's lots of fun to just keep learning. And you're doing an event while you're in London with Neil Gaiman. Yes. You, so you sort of have a mutual, bit of a mutual fan thing going on, don't you? We do. We've been, we've been friends for years, and we did a book together a few years ago called Unnatural Creatures. Which was an anthology. An anthology. Of, yeah. mm-hmm. of new and old writers. Yes, it was new stories and old stories about monsters. It was a young adult anthology, and it was a lot of fun. So we've always wanted to work together again, and we also just, yeah, we like each other's work. We, we're interested in lots of the same things. I think we execute very differently. We, we're very different writers, but we like the same little kernels of interesting information. And monsters. And monsters. We both really like monsters. <laughs> and he really is, as I am, very interested in Beowulf. He did an adaptation of Beowulf himself for the screen about 10 years ago. So it, Beowulf it seems to be stealing a march on Richard Yates in this. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I mean, the Richard Yates part of this was just actually my rebellion against Richard Yates. I felt very aggravated that that book was such a... That's Revolutionary Road. Revolutionary yeah. Road, that it was it was a, considered a great American novel, and it was recommended to me over and over, and people said, this is you you have to read it. And then I read it, and I thought, why? Why did I have to read that? It's really depressing, and it's very very terrible for the women, the female characters, horrible, horrible things happen to them that are marketed a little bit as, oh, they deserved it. And I, th- that book was written in the early 60s, as I recall. And it just ha- contains within it seeds of something that I wanted to plant and do differently. I was, I was interested in the notion of utopian isolation, the idea that if you put yourself in a gated community, you have all the right people and you have all of the right things and everything is perfect. And of course, it's not. It just is inherently not perfect. Your monsters come with you. And the idea that then if your monsters have come with you, you might deny that those are your monsters and look outside for more for other monsters. And rather wonderfully, you, you have this image of they've gated it down the hill, but they haven't gated it up the hill. Yes. But they don't realize that the really ferocious things are the things that live on the hill that have been ejected from human society. Yes, they think the, they think that the mountain is beautiful scenery and it's part of the the view is part of what they've paid for. So they don't they don't realize that maybe the mountain and the mountain itself says you should have paid attention to the mountain because the mountain is is old and kind of supernatural and contains rooms where Grendel and his mother live. But, you know, that in this book, they aren't monsters. They're just perceived as monsters by the people who live in the community. They're yeah. perceived as, as threats. Yeah. You wouldn't want them visiting your glass house, would you? <laughs> but on the other hand, you wouldn't want to live next door to the glass house. I wouldn't want to live in that glass house. That glass house is an unpleasant place to live, it looks like to me. I mean, I my own background is so much more the background of living in a cave on a mountain than it is the background of living in a glass house. How did you come to live on a cave in a mountain? I never <laughs> lived in a cave, but I but I did live in the wilds of Idaho with a hundred sled dogs at some points. Because you what? Well, because you because of what your dad and mum did. Yes, yeah. my dad raised sled dogs, so I grew up with with a lot of animals around me all the time and a lot of natural world. We were in the in southern Idaho, where the sort of Lewis and Clark route of southern Idaho is where I'm from. And that's the place where everyone died of thirst. It's lots of places called Massacre Rocks. And it's a place with a history of violence. And hist- it's also very beautiful and very wild, almost almost completely unpopulated. So I grew up without a lot of neighbors. I mean, we're 10 miles outside of a town of 500 people, which was small. <laughs> 
Now, that's so interesting because I didn't know anything about your background. And I can absolutely see now, having talked to you, where the centre is like where the plumb line lies down the middle of this novel mm-hmm. is also down the middle of your life. Yes, certainly, because I've also I have lived in communities more like the one that is is here at Hall in this book. I've done that, too. I've had marble countertops. I've had I've had a life much more of of a wife and mother than I currently have. And it's uh, it was interesting to look into both sides of that history to to consider the wildness that I came from and the resistance to society that I came from growing up. And then for my entire 20s and part of my 30s, I was I was living in a lovely house in Seattle and in my lovely kitchen, looking out the lovely windows. And some of that was really wonderful and other parts of it were fueled some of my imagination of what this suburb is actually like, the difficulties inside of it, the ways that neighbors can have wars with one another that are silent, that you can actually have enemies within a community like that. And you can you can have, and all the things that are going be- beneath the surface, there are love affairs and there are giant battles between generations of families. And in this case, the matriarchs of suburbia who kind of came from that part of my life a little bit. I put them in in the context of the poem there, the soldiers that support Beowulf. They're they're the women who support, or in the context of our time, they're the women who voted for Trump (laughs) in America. I was interested in the women who decided to plug themselves into the patriarchy and support it and keep it going, rather than looking at maybe women could have some power. They didn't really want that power. They wanted the power they knew, which is the power of of the husband. Claire Armitstead was speaking with Maria Devana Headley. The Mere Wife is published by Scribe, and Sarah Perry's Melmoth is published by Serpent's Tale, and both are out now. Next week, how many different ways can we write a life? We explore the story of German thinker Hannah Arendt through the pen of New Yorker cartoonist Ken Crimstein, and historian Dermot McCulloch delves into the annals of time in the British Library's archives to give us a new perspective on Thomas Cromwell, whose life many of us have heard told by Hilary Mantel. Until then, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But from me, Sean Kane, and our producer Susanna Trezillian, thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.